This is the Spirit writing through Paul to the church in Ephesus. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it might go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, so while portions of this letter in Ephesians, and certainly this section, could seem to us to be a potential source of embarrassment, especially lines like, wives, submit to your husbands, or slaves, submit to your, or obey your masters, these, these sections of Scripture were absolutely game-changing and pregnant with new possibilities for those who heard them in a first-century context. And that isn't conjecture. I'm not just trying to spin that to get away from or softening, saying, well, this is not really what it means to say. It means something else. They were read like this, heard like this, and women, wives, children, and slaves were gobsmacked. They were like, wow, is this, is this true? Is this real? We know these texts were a source of unparalleled hope for those who heard them, especially women, because within a few generations of the Christian community and then churches, home churches being established, um, the church began to be disproportionately populated by women. So much so, um, oh, actually, before I get there, one of the, um, by the second century, there was a pagan critic named Celsus 
And in attempting to bring derision and to demean the church and this Christian project and what he saw as this new social movement, one of the ways that Celsus described Christianity as a way of pointing out how foolish and how foolish anybody would be to join its ranks was that he called it a religion of women, children, and slaves. That's what he called it in the second century. He used the same three titles Paul uses in Ephesians. But he's using it to say, there's a lot of religions out there, the marketplace of ideas, a lot of opinions on what's right and what's true. We might have disagreements about the top dogs. We can for sure agree on the contemptible ones like Christianity because look who populates the Christian churches. It's a religion of women and children and slaves. And in that context, those are very much second-class citizens. So the inference is this. If God was real, God would be mighty. God would be powerful. And God would certainly have, if there's any kind of a movement or institution, it would be full of the mighty and the glorious and the powerful. But churches are not full of the mighty and the glorious and the powerful. Churches are full of weak, losers, second-class citizens, subhumans, those who are, those who by their very nature ought to be ruled by men. And that reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, you know, God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. For women and slaves and children, the Christian message was very attraction. Uh, it was very attractional. It was very attractive. A contemporary of Celsus, so someone who lived at the same time. He wasn't a pagan. He was a bishop of uh, Carthage. So churches are starting to form and have kind of umbrellas of bishops who are overseeing different areas and uh, helping churches grow in discipleship. By the second century, Cyprian of Carthage writes that. Christian maidens were so numerous it was a pastoral challenge to find enough Christian husbands for them all. Unmarried Christian women, Christian widows were flocking to the church so much. Now again, that seems counterintuitive because we're just reading passages that sound misogynistic. Or we know from certain parts of not, the not-too-distant past, those verses have been used as leverage against women where there's a lot of women today who would say the church or Christianity is the last place that I would step, that I, that I would embrace because of some of its historic abuses against uh, women, children, and slaves. But I want to invite you to understand that those abuses, again, aren't embedded into the actual message of Christianity. When Christianity's message was pure and undefiled by political or social corruption, women, children, slaves heard something here that was revolutionary for them. It was incredibly hope-filled. There's good historical evidence to support the fact that by the second century, church was disproportionately populated by women. And so while we can read these texts and what they might strike us as being anti-women or anti-wives, uh, anti-child, pro-slavery, that is not, that is clearly not how they were read by the first people who heard, it, heard the message. And in the case of women, 
Some historians have made the case that the early Christian communities were the best communities to be a part of if you were a woman, if not the best. And there's at least four reasons for that. I'm going to go through them quickly. Number one, Christians utterly rejected infanticide. Infanticide is the practice having a child, realizing it's deformed, or in Roman, Roman culture, a woman, a girl, which means liability, and then exposing it to, to the elements and allowing it to die. It's a burden. The physically infirmed and deformed and young girls were thought to be just an ec- economic burden. Christians across the board say every life is precious to God. And so the Christian community, over time, what happens? As those marriages and those families come to Christ, they have children, they have four girls, none of those girls get killed. They're brought up in a community that says you're valuable, you're loved, you're on equal worth. So over time, what happens is there's more and more women. And then obviously women value the fact that in these communities, women aren't a second-class citizen, so they join it. Number two, Christianity offered women unparalleled intellectual opportunities. It's an interesting phenomenon that in Greek culture, women of a high socioeconomic and even political and social status converted to Christianity in the decades of 60, 70, 80, 90 AD. Why did they do that? One of the reasons is that women who came into the community were encouraged to study the scriptures and in some cases to even begin learning biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew so that they could rightly handle the word of truth and teach other people. In the early church, women were liberated into a level of intellectual and theological learning and discipleship that many historians say was not on offer through any other institution. In fact, by the 400s, so within 400 years of the church taking shape and growing, St. Augustine writes, and he boasts in his writing, that any old Christian woman is better educated in spiritual matters than any current philosopher. There's a source of pride for the church that anybody who walks through their doors, who gives their life to Christ, gets a serious and robust intellectual theological education. Number three, in Christian marriages, husbands were commanded. So just full stop there, just period. Husbands were commanded to do things. It wasn't just the burden of obedience and submission. Uh, wasn't just on wives, children, and slaves or servants in that household. Husbands were now given commands. They were, in a sense, put in their place under a larger authority. They were not capital A authority of the home. The home was seen as under the lordship of Christ, and that has ramifications for everybody, including husbands. And women began to enjoy a kind of marriage that to that point hadn't really ever been on, uh, available to them in terms of an institution pushing an idea that husbands had an obligation to love and care for their wives. Not, um, and they weren't allowed to define what that love looked like. They had to look to Christ's love for his church. That's the model that they had to use to love and care for their households. Otherwise, they could come under church discipline. So obviously when that's being taken seriously, abuse and mistreatment kind of nosedives, right? Because there's no way to justify it. There's no way to say, well, I beat my wife, I emotionally abuse my children, I radically mistreat my slaves because I kind of see a parallel in what Jesus does. You can't do it. So there were new guardrails for safety and flourishing put in place for Christian marriages. 
right? That comes out of Ephesians 5, where Paul says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. We read right past that, but that was a revolutionary idea in that context. That your wife wasn't something you owned, it was a co-laborer in the gospel that you had to treat with the same dignity and care that you are expecting everyone else in your household to bend over backwards to meet your needs. You now have to do the same. So completely new expectations for Christian fathers and husbands. And lastly, and this is the one that is really interesting, Christian women, or in Christianity, women were empowered to not get married. Now today, uh, it's not uncommon for women to delay marriage, but 2,000 years ago, that's the default setting for every woman's job. Is when you're raised as a girl, your job is going to be a wife and a mother. You might have other responsibilities that kind of are attendant to those central callings, but that's it. Like, that is what God has made you for within Jewish culture. That's what God has, that's what the gods, or that's, your, that's the pur- purpose of your existence in a Roman worldview. You are there to breed, to establish our economic and military security by having more children, ideally in Roman context, more males. But in Christianity, for the first time ever, women are invited to not marry and told that's a totally legitimate way to live your life. And it's a God-glorifying way to live your life. In 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, Paul writes this, Now to the unmarried and to widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. No, one, no one's talking like that in the first century. Not only that it's like permissible, it's actually good. It'd be good. If you're a widow, if you're unmarried, um, the Spirit's counsel through Paul is not, don't, don't just set marriage as the default for your life, as if that's what you have to do to have a full life. If they can't control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then later on, He says, listen, if you do, uh, this is in a little bit farther in 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 28, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. And then the spirit through Paul gets real and says, but those who marry are going to face many troubles in this life, and I just want to spare you this. Paul's like, listen, marriage is not all that it's cracked up to be. It's awesome. It's a gift from God. But don't think that getting married is going to solve all your problems. He's like, it's going to do the opposite. It's going to introduce new problems. So if you can help it, stay single. He says in verse 32, I would like you, he's speaking to men and women, I would like you to be free from concern. An an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried uh, woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And you need to understand there is nothing in the messaging in the first century from either a Jewish worldview or a Greco-Roman worldview that prepared people to hear this message. That in Christ, your identity is so robust, your purpose is so full and rich, your vocation is so significant that singleness or being unmarried or being a widow even is no longer seen as a curse. 
but it's seen as something good. It's even seen as a kind of ideal. And so that meant that for the first time, women hearing the Christian gospel message and its implications also heard a message that their dignity, their worth, their value, their vocation was not seen as intrinsically tied to getting married and having children. Now that's difficult for people to imagine, maybe even for us today. Because often the church sends a different, different message, a not-so-subtle message that marriage is kind of the capstone to a, a Christian life well-lived. But that is not biblical. While we move through these reflections on how the gospel ought to shape our marriages and eventually our parenting and our interaction in the workplace, please know if you are in a, um, if you're currently unmarried for whatever reason, that you do not need to get married, you do not need to be married, you do not need to have children, you do not need to raise a family in order to be powerfully used by God for his kingdom agenda in this world. Christianity does not teach that marriage and children are the capstone of a godly life well lived. They are absolutely gifts from God. But singleness is not a situation to lament. It's an opportunity to take advantage of and to stretch yourself in serving the Lord, kind of pedal to the metal, full on just because you have fewer responsibilities. So I hope that's an encouragement to the unmarried among us. Okay, let's look at marriages. And although I, I thought this week I'd tackle one of the frequently asked questions that I often get whenever this thing comes up, issue of marriage and then submission and mutual submission and then headship and uh, it's kind of a nest of issues there. But part of I think what's important to establish and to look at is the question, does it actually matter what form Christian marriages take? And a different way of asking that question might be like, um, should husbands be the head of the household? Like in a normative sense. Obviously not that some people might choose that, but like ought that to be the case across all marriages in all contexts and all cultures and all time periods? Is that the way God, desi- does God, has God designed Christian marriages to look and adhere to a certain form? And this is the big question, and it kind of emerges out of a number of New Testament texts, but one of the ones that we're in now is Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 24, where Paul says, submit to one another, but then he says, wives to the husbands, and then he goes on this rationale. He says, for the husband, in verse 23, is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And so again, at first pass, it might make, uh, it, it reads as if there's a special particular call to submission for wives within marriage, and that call to submission is submission in everything. And that doesn't seem to be connected to other factors like, well, I'm only speaking to here in Ephesus, or I'm... Uh, or even I'm, I'm, I'm only speaking to situations where maybe the husband has followed Christ for a longer amount of time because there's about a 10 to 15 year gap between the age of marriage when men got married and when 
Uh, girls got married. Girls got often get married at age 12, 13, 14. Men somewhere around 19 to a little bit lower. Actually, in Jewish culture, it was considered a sin in the first century if you weren't married as a male by the time you were 20. But in, in Roman culture, it could be up to like 30 until your first marriage was seen as like, oh, you should probably start thinking about getting married. Um, so th- there's no caveats to that. It just says the husband, by virtue of the fact that he's a husband and, and parallels Christ's relationship with the church, he ought to be submitted to and seen as the head and respected as the head in everything. Now what I'm going to do this morning, I've given you an extended handout. Uh, don't worry about reading through all that now. You can kind of go back during the week and use that as reference. I want to just kind of share with you a very basic summary of the two dominant views within uh, Christianity, where I land, where our covenant denomination lands, and sort of the consequences of that. So for some of you, you might be familiar with this, for others not. So I will be moving through it through through a somewhat brisk pace. But again, if on a personal level, you're like, hey, can I get together for coffee or a I want some clarity around what you said here. Feel free to email me. But this is uh, something that you could spend weeks and weeks and months on. And I just for sake of, of brevity and moving through things, I just want to give you an overview, kind of an introduction to these two views. So to the question in a Christian marriage, should the husband be viewed, submitted to, and obeyed as the head of the household? Kind of no, full stop, no, no context or caveats to that there would be uh, Christians who would say yes. And that is sometimes referred to as the complementarian view. And the complementarian view is established, broadly speaking, through an understanding of the scriptural message. I've talked about creation, fall, redemption before. Complementarians use that same framework to say that to end up on the position that yes, in every Christian marriage, men are to occupy the position of head of the household and they're to be submitted to in everything. Still in reference to submit to one another and caring and doing it in a loving way. So it's, it's, this is not a view that's saying, like a Roman, they have capital A authority to do what they will. But there is still a necessary, necessary and good and godly hierarchy within the marriage structure. So the argument would go like this. In creation, in Genesis, we see male and female created by God, equal in dignity, equal in value, in an essence, but distinct in the roles that they were given to occupy within marriage and the family. Men are given the responsibility of loving authority over women. Women are to offer willful or willing, glad-hearted, joyful submission and assistance to the man. Now, sin enters into the story and corrupts that God-given hierarchy, where now we're in that hierarchy where there was a sense of mutual love and care and concern for each other, now there's enmity. The curse on the woman enters in in Genesis 3, and a hierarchy that was meant to lead to flourishing for marriage and the family now leads to the partners trying to be lording it over the other. So there's a disruption in a fundamentally good hierarchy within marriage. And redemption in Christ, Christian marriages then, and certainly in Ephesians 5, the text I just read would be a good example, exhibit that God's created intention was to redeem marriages back to God's original intent, which was hierarchy within marriage. Man is in a position of authority to lead through loving service, and a woman is to submit 
and assist the man and the marriage and the family moving forward in that vision. And so this view would broadly say men are designed and called to be the spiritual leaders in their families and within their marriages. Everyone else in the household should recognize and respect that God-given authority. This is normative for Christian marriages across cultural contexts. It doesn't matter whether you're in Ghana or Nelson or 21st century or 13th century. It doesn't matter the particularities of the individual marriage relationship. That's the default starting point of what it means to have a faithful God-honoring marriage. Husbands and wives are equal before God, but they just occupy different roles. So that would be, yes, Christian marriages ought to take a set form if they're going to be genuinely Christian and genuinely biblical. There is a view that would say no to that, that Christian marriages are not committed to a particular form or structure in order to be genuinely biblical or Christ-honoring or, um, or godly. And this would be the egalitarian position. And egalitarians would move through creation, fall, redemption and the story of Scripture and the key texts, but they would frame it this way. That in Genesis 1, God created male and female as equal in all respects. And there actually is no distinction made in terms of gender roles in that first uh, and second chapter of Genesis. That is read into the text. Men and women are created equally. They are uh, co-equal image bearers of God. And both the man and the woman are given the responsibility to rule over God's creation be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth, that's given to both the man and the woman. So they have functional equality as well. In Genesis 3, sin introduced into God's creation does corrupt the marital relationship. And egalitarians would say one of the chief examples of sin's defilement is that it introduced an illegitimate hierarchy where within the relationship, man is placed on top of woman as part of the woman's curse Um, due to sin. That because of sin, women have the disposition of subservience before a man, and man would have, in contrary measure, a disposition of supremacy over the woman. But this emerges from a sinful corruption from what God intended. And because of sin, therefore, the male-female equality that God intended for in creation has now been defiled by a tendency to want to, again, be uh, over and against and lording it over the other person in the relationship. Kind of who's winning the marriage? And in Christ, in redemption, what does a Christian marriage look like? It looks like a restoration tour back to God's ideal, which was that man and woman, uh, distinct in terms of gender, are given the task and the calling to be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, go forth and serve God together. But... Uh, Galatians 3.28, where Paul talks about how there's no longer male or female, he's pointing to a truth that any false or sinful basis of male-female hierarchy has been abolished in Christ. And so there's no legitimate distinction in God's kingdom between um, the significance or role of men and women as it relates to serving God and serving one another in marriage. So therefore, egalitarians would say full male and female equality is restored, Full dignity is restored to women and servant attitudes are called for in men and women alike and husbands and wives. And so this view would just summarize and say husbands and wives are released from any potentially constricting uh, gender roles where 
to be a good Christian wife, you have, it has to look like this. To be a good Christian husband, it has, you have to adhere to this model. And you're free to arrange your marriage as best enables you to serve God and love others. And so this should be done, obviously, prayerfully, reflecting on your own uniqueness and gifts as a couple and, indi- and individual gifts and skills and talents. And the goal is to allow the giftedness of each person to shape the marriage and to allow Christian marriages to move forward, not based on necessarily arbitrary roles, but on roles that fit the nature of each couple and that each couple has surrendered to and kind of joined together and say, yeah, I think this is going to work for us. And I could see how you can flourish in Christ this way and how I can, and I want to help you do that. So my view and the covenant view is the egalitarian view. It is the second view that the way we read and uh, interpret, you know, what does the text say? What does the text mean? How do we apply the text? We end at an egalitarian position. And that egalitarian position has consequences not just for how marriages should, should be structured within the home, but women's participation in the life of the church. Um, that being said, the covenant recognizes that you can arrive at a uh, complementarian position that a man should be the head of the household, you can arrive at that biblically. They wouldn't say that's an unbiblical position. And so the covenant says, hey, if you want to embrace that view and if you and your spouse are united in that vision for your marriage, awesome, serve God that way. They're not saying you you have to do marriage our way or through our philosophy. But they ask um, certainly pastors and leaders and anybody who's in a teaching position to make sure people know that we don't, uh, we, we, we are going to teach and we're going to let people know that where we ultimately stand and we, we think what's a more biblically robust and faithful position is ultimately egalitarianism. But that doesn't mean that if you're a complementarian, you can't be a part of a covenant church, you can't be a, an active member in a church. It just means that you need to recognize that um, we're not going to receive from you any kind of advocation for like, oh, we want to become complementarians and we should talk as if uh, men are the head of the household. So I don't use that language partly because I don't believe it. I don't think that's a uh, wise way to frame things in terms of an egalitarian perspective. And the covenant churches doesn't uphold that, uh, doesn't uphold that either. But it doesn't seek to demean or to diminish those who would uh, hold that view themselves. And again, because this conversation extends to broader questions of should women be pastors, which the complementarian position is going to say no, they shouldn't, because just like men are meant to be the head in the household, the church is meant to mirror and be the family of God, the household of God. And so in short order, you can kind of see how men are only supposed to be in positions of authority and um, women should be in a th- can still be in positions of influence and teaching to other women, but not towards other men. But again, that's not my view. That's not the egalitarian view. The egalitarian view would be because men and women are different, because they image God equally but in distinct ways, the church is strengthened. And we see this in the book of Acts and in the evidence for this in the epistles and certainly in early, Christ, uh, early Christian history, that the church is stronger and more faithful to its mission as men and women who are gifted and called are put in positions of authority and leadership commensurate with their gifting and calling but they're not withheld from those simply because of gender. That gender is an illegitimate uh, criteria by which we would remove someone or keep them from a position of influence or authority within the local church. And so we say that 
um, you know, in, 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 in answering this question, should, should the form of a Christian marriage look the same way across cultures? Me, uh, myself and the covenant would say, not necessarily. That there might be good reasons why you might not want to go into a particular context and just uh, lay down a well-intended rule that says men should always be in leadership in the home. That the covenant says uh, that is not their position. Not because of... Um, how would I say this? Well, the covenant believes in empowering both individuals within marriage and to recognize that marriages are an intensely personal kind of, uh, not, not in the sense of one-on-one, but in terms of the couple, between them and God. And the covenant, because of one of its values of freedom in Christ, really sees a, a value in saying, you are accountable as a couple to love and serve the Lord uh, ultimately, as you see fit, you are accountable for your marriage before God. And so grapple with the text and do your homework and come to an agreement and then love and serve God together. But within the covenant church, we are going to say that as we've done our homework, as we've looked at all the scriptures and the, all the commentaries and done some really good work, we recognize there, there are these two positions, but we just see the biblical evidence uh, tipping to the one side. So what, what do I encourage, what's my word of encouragement for those who are unmarried, who are currently married, who are in a state where they find themselves uh, no longer married, so kind of before or during or even after marriage? I think this is a th- something that we all need to do. Five things really quick. We all need to grapple with the texts. We all need to read the text on marriage, understand the overall uh, narrative of Scripture well, so that we're not allowing a few texts to simply dominate and really, really make sure that our deep convictions about what it means to have a genuinely Christian marriage is actually wedded to the text and not secondhand from a Christian culture that we have adopted, however well intended. Number two, you've got to examine your scripts. You've got to be aware of, again, again, do your convictions come from Scripture? Or are they heavily weighted from the fact that you grew up in a certain context that said, this is the way a marriage is supposed to look in order for it to be genuinely God-glorifying. And again, you just kind of conflated that and, and thought, well, I just kind of always assumed cr- somewhere in the Bible it just taught that. So examine your scripts. Where do those scripts come from? How culturally shaped are they? And are they shaped in a way that is aligned to the gospel? Or are they, again, maybe well-intended, but they're just kind of an adoption from certain cultural standards. I think within marriage, or as someone who's unmarried, evaluate your own shape, your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, your experiences. Who are you? Know who you are. Know who God has made you. Set yourself up to succeed. I think it's really important in marriage to, instead of, in one sense, carrying anxiety, but how how do we define headship and leadership in our home? And again, to come back to, and this is the fourth point, keep focusing on mutual submission, which is going to keep driving you back into questions like, I appreciate who you are as my spouse. I see these strengths in you. How can I support your strengths? How can I uh, compensate for some of your weaknesses? Uh, You're more mature in this area. Can you help to kind of override my immaturity in this area? You have more faith here. Can you help me here? So it's this constant, and I think you have to do this probably through different stages of 
your relationship. Doing this when you're newly, when you're unmarried looks a little bit differently than when you are newly married versus when you're in the throes of raising a family versus when you're empty nest and when you're retired. So coming back to this process is really important even at different phases because I know couples who have started marriage one way and then through a long and winding road said, hey, we've grappled with the text. We've talked with each other. We've, ex- we've reflected on our journey. And now we're kind of switching sides because of the Spirit's work in our life. So even if you decide on a structure and form that works for you now, again, and this is point five, agree on a vision knowing that you have freedom in Christ. This isn't, your salvation doesn't, it doesn't depend on how you conceptualize your marriage. It's how you live out and through your marriage and how you honor God through your marriage. That's the significant part. And that's going to force you to keep coming back to this question of what does it look like? Verse 21, Ephesians 5, submit to one another, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And then you can go through the rest of the passage and you can have discussions amongst yourselves and in Bible studies about okay, what does headship look like and all these different things and complementarian versus egalitarian. Oh, I can see both sides and, you know, but again, you have freedom in Christ to say ultimately in my marriage, in our marriage, this is where we stand. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This is the way that we before God feel convicted to do it. And when we have um, couples in our church that are doing that, coming out of this process, I think we should celebrate that instead of saying like, ooh, but you ended on the wrong, like the wrong side. And this, is, and this is why I say that. Pastorally, I'm an egalitarian, but I'm actually comfortable people falling on either side. And here's why. A healthy complementarian marriage, so a healthy Christ-honoring complementary marriage where both on the wife and the husband have agreed that they want, they understand the wife to, or the husband to be the male, the head of the household and to be authoritative and to be the servant leader and the wife to submit. A healthy relationship that has that form is going to look almost indistinguishable from a relationship where both people are saying, I want to mutually submit to you. How do I care and love you and how do we serve God together? And I've talked with a number of pastors, talked with Jason and Jesse and Rick about this, other covenant pastors, and it's actually really true. On the outside, it's very difficult when there's a healthy egalitarian relationship or a healthy complementarian relationship. It's very hard from the outside to be like, I bet you they're egalitarian. Because it just looks like both always deferring to the other and caring for each other. One not clearly not lording it over the other. I remember reading The Meeting of Marriage by Tim Keller with my wife a few years ago, and to get to the last chapter, and it was really interesting in this regard because his la- he, he kind of saves the really controversial thing to the end to like headship and how should Christian marriages be structured and should the man be the head of the household. And Timothy Keller is a complementarian, so he would say yes, Christian marriages should be understood as a hierarchy where the man has slightly more authority than the woman and the woman should submit to that. You read that whole chapter and Heather and I the whole way are like, is he arguing for egalitarianism? Like there's, he's not, he sounds like an egalitarian. And right, 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 right at the end of the chapter, he kind of says, well, in some of these circumstances, you might need someone to kind of make the decision, and I think that should be the man. It was just so interesting that if, if you think of 
you know, the spectrum between radically unhealthy, egalitarian, where everything has to be equal just because equality is, is the actual virtue, and really unhealthy um, expression of um, complementarianism, which, which is kind of this Roman authority, man, you know, king of the castle, pent-ultimate authority, everyone else just serves the whims of the man. And as you move towards the center of each view, or the other side of each view, but in the center, there is this um, increasing awareness of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In Christian marriages that I've experienced, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited for a couple that lands on either side, as long as they are in that vision together. Because I certainly um, believe that there is a way of a powerful way of honoring Christ within both both frameworks. Uh, even though I would say in my marriage and in marriage counseling, I would make sure people understand that I would be fully egalitarian. And that would be the vision is to always be pressing into the kind of marriage that we feel convicted that we are to live before God. And that will make your marriage, whatever form you take, complementarian or egalitarian, the spirit of it on the inside and how that plays out in terms of other people seeing it, that will make your marriage seem very alien to the surrounding culture around you. Because it will be very clear that you are not in some kind of emotional or relational arms race to be over and against the other person. But instead, you're focusing on how your marriage can be a source of honor to God and blessing to people as you live out this commitment towards one another with a desire to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. So let's pray. God, marriages are a gift, and for the marriages within our midst, uh, I, I pray for some of these things, God. I pray that um, maybe there's couples here who say, yeah, we haven't really talked through what we need to do in our marriage at this stage of life to really kind of reset, get on the same page, to know where we stand, to move forward together. Maybe there's a distance or we've gotten, gotten off track or maybe there's even animosity and resentment and, and some challenges that we need to work through God. And then I just pray for our marriages. I pray that uh, whether or not we land from a place of conviction uh, on a complementarian view or an egalitarian view, God, that uh, our marriages would be such that they would increasingly be conformed to uh, a, a picture of um, the relationship between Christ and the church and of self-sacrificial love and that the scripts that our culture tells us about marriage as a means to another end or marriage as a means to self-fulfillment, marriage as a means to our happiness as an as a arena through which we extract our own joy and happiness from the other person until they can no longer meet that and then we move on that those uh, scripts and those lies uh, would just be crushed under the, uh, the weight of the gospel and the glory of the gospel. Help our marriages, God. In Jesus' name, amen.